MPN Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support. Hello, and welcome to the MPN Hub Podcast. Today, we'll be hearing from Dr. Laura Michaelis and Dr. Anand Patel of Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, USA. Well, hello, everybody. I'm Laura Michaels. Um, I'm one of the leukemia, both chronic and acute specialists at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Wisconsin. And I'm here with Dr. Anand Patel. Anand, you wanna tell folks a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks so much uh, uh, for having me, Laura. My name is Anand Patel. Uh, I am part of the leukemia and myeloid malignancy group at the University of Chicago. Uh, and I also serve as the medical director of our inpatient leukemia service. So uh, very happy to be here this morning. Uh, absolutely. And uh, UFC is my alma mater. So uh, I'm happy to have you as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about um, when we refer patients for clinical trials um, in folks with myeloproliferative neoplasms. And I thought maybe we'd start just by talking about uh, both essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera, I think the question of when does one get treated with the standard of care and when to can consider a clinical trial is sort of a subtle one. Um, and even if we start with, for example, newly diagnosed essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera, we have a number of standard care options in that population. Um, hydroxyurea, of course, which we've, um, for people that require cytoreductive therapy, has been around for a long time. And then with the approval, um, the approvals and sort of growing use of, for example, pegylated interferon or the new rogue peg interferon in that population, those are also possible for newly diagnosed patients. And yet there are clinical trials. Um, there's clinical trials, for example, being looked at of rogue peg interferon in essential thrombocythemia. And there's also clinical trials of these new hepcidin mimetics. So Anand, I wondered, when do you think, if you have a newly diagnosed patient, somebody who requires cytoreductive therapy because they're high risk for one reason or another, when do you think about putting them on a clinical trial rather than using the standard of care? Yeah, it's a great question, Laura. And I think it's helpful to think about from the context of both polycythemia vera, PV, and essential thrombocythemia, ET, uh, what our goals are in, in trying to uh, treat uh, someone. And really, we're thinking about trying to redu uh, reduce the risk of thrombotic complications, so clotting issues, uh, and then uh, the risk of progression to what we call secondary myelofibrosis, so scarring of the bone marrow, uh, and then not necessarily having issues with high blood counts, but lower blood counts. Um, so kind of with that framing in mind and thinking about our, our standard therapies, uh, so uh, the medications that Laura very nicely outlined, uh, I think one of the questions we ask ourselves is, is the, the drugs we have available to us, uh, we know are, are fairly effective at reducing, whether it's your hematocrit for PV or your, your platelet count for ET. Uh, but I think a bigger question is, is how are we kind of impacting or, or modifying uh, the natural history of the disease? So how are we impacting not just the immediate complications we worry about, but, but those complications that may be several years down the road? And generally speaking with these standard therapies, um, the impact for that is, is not as, as clear cut. Uh, you know, Maybe with interferon, we may see some of that, uh, but with things like hydroxyurea uh, uh, or other cytoreductive agents in that field, not so much. The other thing to think about, particularly with PV, 
uh, is phlebotomy uh, is certainly a, a mainstay of what we use, but but wouldn't it be great if we're able to treat patients and, and try to get away from phlebotomy if possible? So thinking about agents that that are able to bring down the hematocrit, get it into goal range uh, uh, without necessarily having phlebotomy as an adjunct. Um, it's an exciting time uh, to be in the field of myeloproliferative diseases. There, there are many novel drugs that are uh, in development and being studied. Uh, so Laura had mentioned uh, resfertide or PTG300, which is a hepcidin mimetic uh, that seems to work very effectively. Um, and other drugs that we kind of have in this space uh, include bomidemstat, uh, which is an LSD1 inhibitor, and it's being looked at in myelofibrosis as well. Uh, we've previously had some encouraging data uh, with use of uh, a telomerase inhibitor called imitelstat, which is being investigated uh, uh, in other myeloid malignancies as well, um, along with uh, a class of drugs called MDM inhibitors and specifically one uh, called idacin nutlin. So I certainly think um, there is space to still think about clinical trials, uh, even in someone with a new diagnosis of PV and ET. Yeah, one of I think you bring up some really good points. So one of the things I think about when I'm counseling a patient on whether or not I want to put them on a trial is to look at that primary endpoint as well. Does that endpoint align with the goals of the patient? And one of the things I think that was most attractive about the rogue pig interferon studies that were done in Europe is that the secondary endpoints, as you know, looked at the allelic burden of the JAK2 mutation, which is maybe one of our first opportunities to see, can we actually alter the molecular landscape in MPNs in a way that would theoretically, we don't have long-term data yet, like years worth of data, but are we changing the natural history of the disease by reducing the, the burden of that mutation, making the molecular landscape less fragile, less likely to convert to something worse? So one thing I think we can look at when we're thinking about a trial is what are those endpoints? What is the data that's going to be generated from my patient's time and risk when I put somebody on that trial? And the second thing I think is, what is the nature of their disease? Do they have the kind of disease that makes me worried? Are they a PV patient that has other cytogenetic abnormalities, right? Are they a PV patient where there's also some uh, fibrosis in the marrow, where their spleen is enlarged? What is their molecular mutation panel? Are they also somebody that has some of those higher risk mutations that we see like an EZH or an ASXL1 in the mutation panel that again gives me a little concern that their of the heterogeneous trajectory of this disease, their disease is going to be one of the ones that is a little bit more aggressive. And so that I look absolutely what's available. Uh, just like you, what are the goals of the patient? Um, what are the endpoints of the study? And then especially in somebody who's already been treated with a standard of care starting regimen, like a hydroxyurea or somebody who's been on um, and interferon already maybe has had either some resistance to it or progression. So in terms of progression, I'm in, at least in my experience, and you can add in, I'm more likely to see progression on hydrea. And when I have somebody on interferon, my experience is actually that it becomes intolerable for some reason. Their LFTs are persistently elevated or they develop, for example, rheumatological complications or Graves' disease or something that makes me hesitant to continue interferon. Um, and in those patients, I'm looking at a second line 
therapy. And I typically at that time actively pursue what could be in the clinical trial space. Does that align with how you think about this as well? Yeah, Laura, I think you just beautifully laid it out um, where I think it is important to make that that denotation of in patients who are already on uh, some sort of treatment for PV or ET, why it is that we're needing to consider a second treatment, whether it's truly progression of the disease or whether it's um, side effects, complications, or adverse uh, uh, effects related to the medication they're on. Um, I also agree that it certainly is something uh, when thinking about second line clinical trials. So clinical trials that are available to patients that have been on at least one standard therapy, I, I certainly kind of more uh, actively pursue the role of, of clinical trials because uh, that is when it comes to PB and ET, I'd say the landscape is is a little murkier and kind of thinking about where we go next after a standard therapy does not help us achieve achieve our goals for a patient. Exactly. And also, we also have to remember that the outcomes for these traditional cytoreductive therapies have been thrombosis, not death. And so in somebody who's already anticoagulated, for example, or who's not a smoker, et cetera, you have to think a little bit differently about what is the outcome that I'm actually preventing with the therapy that I'm giving someone. Um, and that can be a little tricky. It, many of us who treat acute leukemia as well, we're used to these absolutely catastrophic outcomes that we're trying to prevent. When you move into the chronic disease therapy or treatment uh, diseases, whether or not it's MPNs or CLL, you always have to weigh what what is what am I actually doing with this therapy that I'm giving somebody? So anyway. yeah. Uh I, and and just to tack onto that, I think part of why we we try to make sure we're incorporating uh, not just the things like uh, like um, clinical endpoints in the way of clotting complications or fibrosis, but even assessment of patient symptom burden, because really, you know, Absolutely. when it comes to to MPNs, uh, these are diseases that that our patients uh, uh, live with for several years. Uh, oftentimes. And and really, we want to make sure we're not just uh, um, preserving quantity, but also quality of life and, and really thinking about medications that can impact not just those those clinical endpoints that we talked about, um, uh, but also the the quality of life and symptom assessment endpoints that, that now, uh, thankfully, uh, many clinical trials incorporate uh, into some of the markers that are looked at. That is so true. And that's another thing to think about when you're sort of shopping for clinical trials. Are there clinical trials for either supportive care, alternative therapies, or adjunct therapies that might impact your patient's overall quality of life without actually being a traditionally interventional studies, whether or not that's putting somebody on a nutrition trial, an exercise trial, whether or not it's looking into options to doing genetic or genome testing, for example. So there are studies out there that may not be about a new drug, but might also really have measurable and impactful um, consequences for your patient, but also for other patients out there. So Thank you so much, Dr. Patel, for this time. I really appreciate the chance to talk this through with you. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. Thank you for listening to the MPN Hub podcast. We would also like to thank our supporters, Bristol Myers Squibb, AppV, CTI, Novartis, and Cartos Therapeutics. MPN Hub Podcasts, brought to you by Scientific Education Support.